she prayed and called on for help and this this good fairy appeared and you know said I, I can't really help you get rid of all the pain but what I can do is send it to different parts of your body and kind of tamper it down so you won't feel it so much and she went ahead and did that and she and she said and the little girl said but you know are you going to leave me and she said I'll leave a voice in you and that voice will be a calling back to wholeness today on the podcast a conversation hosted by Dr. Gabor Mate with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield entitled Finding Wholeness Through Our Broken Places today on the Sounds of Sand presented by Science and Non-Duality. If you're ready to explore together, listen in now. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Hi, welcome back. My name is Zaya. And my name is Maurizio. You know that we directed the film, uh, The Wisdom of Trauma. So welcome back to day five of the Talk on Trauma series. And for this conversation with uh, Tara Brack and Jack Cornfield. Special guests. Yep. Delighted to be speaking with them. We've been trying to connect with Tara and Jack for many years. Yeah. And, Finally. And this is the moment. <laughs> uh, Tara Brack, she's a meditation teacher, psychologist, an author of several best-selling books, and her popular weekly podcast on emotional healing and spiritual awakening is downloaded 3 million times a month. Wow. Tara is a founder of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington and has been an active in bringing meditation to schools, prisons, and underprivileged populations. Along with Jack Cornfield, she leads the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification. Mm -hmm. We'll be sending you more information about that. Yep. And Jack, Jack Cornfield, he holds a doctorate in clinical psychology, as trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries in Thailand, India, and Burma, and is the founding teacher of the Insight Meditation Society and the Spirit Spirit Rock Center, is one of the key teachers to introduce mindfulness practice to the West. And he's also an author. He wrote 14 books who have been companions for many of us on the spiritual path. So he's such a good... Both of them are just genuine, authentic human beings that they really... I would say teach integrated spirituality just because of how deeply they've gone on their own journey of healing. Yeah, and yeah. it's, it's going to be an amazing conversation. And uh, so we just leave it to Gabor to take it over. First of all, I'm struck that you're both psychologists and, and you're both very early on your path. Um, um, melded your psychological experience and knowledge and entered a spiritual path. Um, and you've also both been very open about traumas that you've experienced in your life. So I'm just wondering if you could, uh, each of you, tell me the connections that you see between Western psychology, 
trauma and 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 the spiritual path that you've both been pioneering and pursuing all these years. To our dear, who should go first? Um, I, I, well, I, no, I don't. So whoever has moved, whoever's moved to speak. So Gabor, actually, um, my experience was um, backwards from what you described. Okay. Uh, I went, I had a lot of family trauma. And right. in particular, I had a father who was in many ways mentally ill and um, violent and abusive. Uh, and very, very unpredictable. He was a brilliant scientist, but at home he was a tyrant, and he would beat my mother, and um, it was an atmosphere of a lot of fear when he was around um, for years and years. My mom used to hide bottles behind the curtains so she could pick one up to defend herself in certain rooms. Um, just so she would be a little bit safer, not get thrown onto the floor or down the stairs or something. So that was, uh, that was tough. <clears throat> and then I heard when I was in the university um, studying pre-med to go to medical school, right. organic chemistry and all that, I heard Buddhist teachings that there was suffering and that there was also a cause, and, and that there was a path to the end of it. And I got really interested and studied it, and then why I decided to go to a Buddhist country and uh, ended up, I also spent time in Haight-Ashbury taking LSD and the little punch wagon at the Fillmore Theater for music and things. I asked to go to a Buddhist country. I went in the Peace Corps, worked on these village um, rural health medical teams, and then went into a Buddhist monastery and learned all kinds of things which we can talk about, including practices of compassion and forgiveness and mindfulness of the body and many things that now make up good trauma work. And then I came back and I tried to figure out what happened to me after five years there, uh, and I went to graduate school in counseling and psychology and then got a PhD in clinical psychology and began to realize that uh, there was something valuable in the Western psychological approach, which I found to be a kind of paired attention, a kind of the same attention that one might learn in mindful, loving awareness in oneself, that we pay attention to one another. Um, and then to cut it very short after that, um, what became clear now it's been 45 years of teaching, as the years unfolded, is that there was a tremendous amount of trauma in the people who came to meditate. Half of them, that's what brought them there, like me. Um, and that we really needed to incorporate a wisdom of that, because a lot of people approach spirituality hoping to transcend, a kind of spiritual bypass. Um, but in fact, you can't meditate, well, some of them can, but you can't meditate and heal the trauma unless you face it in some way. And so we began to incorporate the things that we'd learned from our Western trauma training and Western psychology. There wasn't even trauma in 
mentioned in Western psychological training when I did my PhD back in the 70s is psychiatry and psychology. They didn't use that word very much. It's, it's kind of remarkable, if not nutty, a kind of deep denial since half of what walks in the door is trauma. Um, um, and so we developed ways, and now in our community, most of the people who've trained as teachers also, they're required to do uh, some deep training, such as Peter Levine's somatic experience or things like that, in concert with their training to be a meditation teacher. Um, and it makes an enormous difference. Well, thank um, you. And yes, I remember uh, I did get your history uh, backwards because um, I've, I've known about that history before. Um, something you said about that reminded me of what James Baldwin once said, something like, uh, you can't fix everything that you face, but you can't fix anything that you don't face. So that in order to deal with something, you have to face it. Tara, you've talked about your eating disorder, um, which um, for me is in every single case a trauma response. It's not one of these mysterious diseases. It's very much a, one of the outcomes of trauma. Um what can you say about your path with trauma and psychology and then spiritual work? Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for asking and bringing that in because my mom was an active alcoholic for most of my time growing up in, in the household. And I ended up with an eating disorder that became really evident in my teens. I gained a lot of weight and I was just riddled with with shame and you know, also a perfectionist trying to achieve, achieve, improve myself and always feeling like I was falling short, something I, I came to term as the, the trance of unworthiness. And, um, and I had siblings, fetal alcohol syndrome with really, you know, just I could, it became clear over time the effect of, of that. So when I was in, uh, right towards the end of college, I began doing yoga and I started getting in my body and more in touch and more awake and decided to join an ashram, a, a spiritual community, partly because of the suffering of feeling like I was flawed. And as you said, Gabor, I have now, in, in working with myself and so many of us have trauma, uh, the shame and the addictive behavior, it all gets paired together. That, it, you know, I can see now a sense of this intelligence and in trying to nourish myself and meet unmet needs, you know, through food and also through drugs um, when I was in college. And, and how then those behaviors made me ashamed of myself even more. And, and I read a very powerful little anonymous story some years back. It's called A Fairy Story. Uh, and and I, I read it because it was handed to me by one of my clients. And she described her own coming out of trauma in... And we, we work together a lot with, with the different kind of uh, practices Jack has referred to. But she described that it was like she was in this closet uh, shaking out a fear of another attack from her alcoholic father. And she 
prayed and called on for help. And this, this good fairy appeared and, you know, said, I, I can't really help you get rid of all the pain, but what I can do is send it to different parts of your body and kind of tamper it down so you won't feel it so much. And she went ahead and did that. And she, and she said, and the little girl said, but, you know, are you going to leave me? And she said, I'll leave a voice in you. And that voice will be a calling back to wholeness. And even though you'll be, you know, you'll, you won't feel the pain as much and you'll act in ways that, you know, are functional, but don't maybe look so good. That voice will call you back to wholeness. And when you're ready, when you have the resources, you'll start unpacking and untwisting and undoing that pain and reconnect with your wholeness. And your wholeness has never been taken away. Your soul's always there. It's just been covered over. And I'm sharing that with you, Gabor, because that was kind of how it was. I had this calling towards something spiritual, something whole. And what I came to sense, like there's this severed belonging. I was severed from my body and I was, you know, severed from feeling real intimacy with others. And there was this calling for some larger belonging. And so that, that brought me to the ashram and the practices there. It was interesting. They, um, they helped me feel a more direct sense of the sacred and how it lived through me. They didn't help me face the actual pain or suffering in my body and heart. It wasn't until I um, left the ashram and I went to my first Buddhist retreat, and that was, oh gosh, in my early 30s, that I got introduced to mindfulness and I actually started learning how to re-inhabit my body in a full way. I mean, the yoga got me high, but it didn't really teach me how to pay attention to the parts of me that I was running away from. And so it was through Buddhist meditation, uh, as Jack describes, it's, you know, that's where I was able to begin to integrate and uh, feel more of the wholeness that originally drew me to the spiritual path. And during um, that transition, I was finishing up my doctorate in psychology, and it was becoming more and more clear that meditation alone wasn't going to do it. It required some of the Western strategies of bringing uh, contents into consciousness, but we need meditation. It's really empowering because then we can start to resource ourselves and we can talk more about the different particulars that meditation offers, but that's what allows us to actually feel that sense of belonging to really something beyond this finite body that really helps us to do all the healing. Well, thank you. Uh, so let's come back to the Buddhist um, teachings for a moment. Um, uh, Jack, I heard you speak many times and read um, some couple of your books, and you know you're very clear on the Buddhist sources of uh, suffering, uh, greed, and anger, and ignorance, and so on. Um, th those cause a lot of suffering, but they're also the results of suffering, aren't they? So they all lead to trauma. 
but they also are rooted in trauma. And I read a very interesting book. I'm sure you know Mark Epstein, a Buddhist psychiatrist, and his in his book, uh, The Trauma of Everyday Life, he makes this point that I thought, how come I didn't think of this? Because he points out that the Buddha actually was a traumatized child. His mother died when he was a week old. And although in the Buddhist mythology or, or cosmology that's presented in sort of magical, heaven-ascending terms, in fact, the Buddha didn't have to wait to see a dead body or an old person or a sick person to be acquainted with suffering. It, was rooted in his own very first weeks uh, of life. So um, these various sources of suffering, uh, do you see them as related to trauma? Yeah, and I, I kind of want to connect it back to the film since uh, this is in some way ancillary or, or maybe adding to the beauty of of the film that you made or were a part of. Um, and part I, of what... I was, I was the victim of it, let me put it up. Yes, well, you're the victim of life, Gabor. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but the, the Buddha said that's what happens. You get born, you have a human incarnation, and, and sure. with the human incarnation, there will be suffering. And that's just an important thing to acknowledge. I um, mean, it's part of the gift of your film is that you let people who watch and the people you work with realize that it's not their fault, that the struggles that they have often and the suffering they have are due to, in Buddhist teachings, what are called prior causes and conditioning, just as you're describing, whether it's the Buddhist mother's death or, or all kinds of other prior suffering. And what's beautiful about the film among many things, is the compassion that you that you offer when you let people know that their suffering is not their fault. And so it lifts that shame and blame and so forth. And it comes in part from not only your own suffering, which I might ask about, but your willingness to go to the places of great suffering, literally in Vancouver to go and work with the people who were homeless or addicted and so forth. And I think of our mutual dear friend Sharon Salzberg, who was up in the northwest in Seattle, she'd actually gone out to a restaurant and she'd come out and there were people on the streets like by Pike's Market and a homeless man came up to her, kind of ragged, and looked at her and said, don't you know me? And Sharon said she had to stop for a moment and think, was this someone among the thousands of students who'd been on retreats or classes with her, she really looked at her and couldn't remember, and probably it wasn't. But then the question resonated deeper, and she realized, don't you know me? Don't you know who I am, a human being who needs to be seen in their secret beauty? And you've done that um, in the film in some way you've humanized um, and, and lifted that, that suffering. Then there's another step, uh, which feels really important and was coming in the conversation that Tara and you were talking about. And that is that that kind of witnessing that very often trauma, because it happened in relationship to another person, can't be healed completely solo on your own. 
It actually has to be healed in relationship. Um, and it has these different dimensions, so I'll tell a tiny or a little bit of a scene. I worked, have worked for years with Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, Maladoma Somme, Robert Light, doing Ben's retreats and doing a lot at times with young men, kids and teens coming out of street gangs um, and vets coming back. And we had a series of retreats for veterans um, that were based on, of course, understanding trauma. And the way trauma works, and you articulate it, it's held in the body with certain emotions. Um, so there's a physical dimension in the work of Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk talk about how you can release that from the body. It's there in the emotional body all the unfelt feelings and so forth. <clears throat> and it's there with a story that goes on in the mind. And so working with these vets, they were encouraged through ritual and practices to move their body and let, let out what they were carrying in that way. Um, in many cases, they also had, we did practices that allowed for their feelings to come forth and be witnessed um, quite profoundly. Uh, and that was done in, in, in ritual ways. Um, we would, with gang kids too, we'd light a candle on the table and say, Kuna, go out in the parking lot and grab a stone and put a stone there for every person you know, every young person you know who was shot, if they're a gang kid who died with their name, Tito and RJ, and, or if you're a vet, your comrades who were killed. And that candle, that simple ritual with the name spoken out loud, said we now have a place to go to the suffering that we carried for so long. And then they were encouraged to tell and write their story. And at the end, we brought back in their families because they couldn't tell their families. And this is the worst of it. They couldn't tell what they saw. They couldn't, it was just too painful and horrific and gory. They didn't want to lay that on their family, but it was even worse than that. They said, it's not that I can't just tell what I saw. I can't say what I did, what I had to do. And with this work, they finally were able to stand up <clears throat> and read a passage of what they'd written that they were never able to give a voice to and be held in community. So now there's body and emotions and story. And when the story was done, they were welcomed back into the community as a whole being. Um, there was a ritual to welcome them home. And I'm taking the time to tell this and because it kind of unpacks what good trauma work is that has to include these dimensions. And in a way, at the end of the film, um, if you will, people are left with, okay, I now get the depth of this trauma and the tears. Um, how do I do this? How do I heal? And then there are these beautiful traditions like EMDR from Bessel's work describing or Peter Levine's somatic experience that you can go online and find and find a good trauma therapist. Thank you, Jack. Um what you're emphasizing here is so important uh, that what the, what the Buddhists talk about, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the Sangha being the community. And, and what you're emphasizing here is the 
the importance of being held in community to heal uh, trauma, as opposed to just the isolated monk sitting by himself on a, on, on a cushion. Not as opposed to, but in addition to. Uh, Tara, I watched your talk, uh, Hungry Ghosts on Addiction, and you may know that my book on addiction is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And, um, and you talked about attachment uh, or desire becoming attachment, and that then shows up as an addiction. But interestingly to me, I don't think in that whole talk you mentioned trauma. So that you, you went from the, uh, I'm not, not, this is not to debate, but I'm just curious because you described very well the phenomena, just that what creates that desperation drive. Um, let me put it this way. You know, the Buddhist word attachment, it's, but to me, attachment, that kind of attachment arises when we don't get attachment needs met in childhood. So, the, so, so it's the lack of attachment that leads to that other attachment that then has us hooked in addictive ways. I wonder if you'd comment on that. Yeah, in a way it goes back to your question about Buddhism and suffering because, and trauma, is, 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 is suffering really trauma? And in a way I, I think of it that um, part of just incarnating means that we have a sense of a separate self and the, and the primal mood of the separate self is fear and it's, and in this society, for the fearful self not to get the attunement it needs to reassure of belonging is trauma. I think there's trauma in most nervous systems because of it, and the basic unmet needs. And I'm thinking of one woman I was with at, at a retreat, and she didn't have you know, some overt story of abuse, but there was this sense, uh, this deep sense of not belonging anywhere, of not not really trusting she was lovable. And so the process really for us was to sense, well, where, you know, where do you sense a feeling of loving? And she couldn't go to her parents. She couldn't find it anywhere. And she was grasping and she would, in her relationship, she would, um, she would be the one to be like really clinging and needy and then feel like it wasn't working. She said, when she imagined the love of Jesus, she she felt held, and she was wearing a shawl, and, and she said, you know, if I could just feel this shawl as Jesus, and that's what happened, Gabor, is that she felt that, that, that love kind of permeating the shawl, and, and she was doing a lot of walking meditation because, again, with undoing trauma, movement is so helpful, and that was what began to soften around that basic unmet unmet need of not having the caregivers in the way and we followed up and and there's a there's a phrase that she loved and I love too which is love is always loving you and that's what trauma blocks us from knowing and that's what most of us don't know because we didn't have that that mirroring that let us know that we belonged. And for another man who, you know, huge PTSD, very big triggering of fear, it was know that you're being held in the heart of the Buddha. And for another woman, it was when she was diagnosed and totally terrified with a uh, life-threatening disease and didn't have that sense of belonging, it was for her 
she would say, please love me and feel something, some loving presence of the universe holding her. Sometimes for some people that softens things up enough. Like if we can, I know for myself, I call out to a sense of the beloved and feel that compassion that's so universal coming through. And that's when I can begin to hold myself with more compassion and then actually let in others. So there are different pathways. I think ultimately if we don't heal in relationship, um, it's not it's not integrated. But I found for so many that meditation helps them tap something universal that's there but hidden and wake that up. Well, um, Jesus, every time each of you speak, there's so many other questions that I want to ask. I really need to limit myself here. Um, and I, and I want to get to fairly quickly to practices that you both embody and teach. Um, but just a few questions before then. Um, one is, Jack, you mentioned the spiritual bypass that can sometimes happen. And you, you, I, I think you and I have talked about this once before. Um, all too often in certain spiritual communities, one sees not just spiritual bypass, but actually a, a overt exploitation by some very accomplished spiritual teachers of, of their followers. And I was always struck by the tremendous split that must exist between such people, because on the one hand, they are speaking, at least what to my very educated eyes, seem spiritual truths and wisdoms from a very deep place. I don't think they're faking it. But at the same time, they're capable of the worst kind of um, objectification and, and exploitation of other human beings who are very close to them. And what's missing there? How would you both... I know, you, I know you're both aware of the phenomenon that exists in, 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 in any religious tradition, Jewish, Christian. It certainly has shown up in certain Buddhist communities. How would you comment on that? So, Gabor... Um, yeah, I, I want to answer in two different parts. What you're talking about is really the misuse of power and role. And it can be by a religious authority. It can be all those priests who misuse their roles with young children, but it can be rabbis or imams, or it can be any spiritual tradition, or swamis or, or, or lamas, Buddhist teachers. Um, but it also, as we see can be politicians, it can be celebrated artists, um, yeah. and, and even those who speak out against the misuse then yeah. dis discover that they, sometimes they actually speak out because there's something in there that, that needs to talk about it, even though they may be perpetrators. So you're talking about something, the misuse of power, that's very deep, and it surprised us at first a little bit to see it there in people who had meditation practices, which is what you're talking about. Well, we'd expect that to be different. Welcome to the human realm. Um, if I mean, I'm not just talking about meditation. I'm talking about people with what seems to be deep wisdom. Isn't, isn't that yes. Okay? Well, that's, that's the thing that what yeah. you're talking about is that the psyche or the heart, um, has different dimensions of development. If you look at it as a mandal or a whole, and so there, there, can, there can be wisdom and understanding in one part, uh, and another part can be shut off. We can compartmentalize. So you have 
an Olympic level athlete who's an emotional idiot or you who knows their body everywhere or you have a Nobel laureate professor who can't find their body or you have a spiritual teacher who has is a fount of some wisdom and can't have a good marriage, you know, or can be abusive in some way because of this splitting. And very often that splitting is the result of trauma, which is what you're pointing to. Um, and it's kind of what Tara was also talking about in some way, so that we see that underneath, very often, that person is just enacting the split that was their self-defense to try to succeed, and maybe they became spiritual to somehow overcome that. So we see the architecture of that all over in, in some way. Um, and a really um, thoughtful uh, and heartful spiritual tradition um, has to talk about these things and has to include not only an understanding of trauma, but also an understanding of power and how teachers can use it or, or not. And just, just for edification, um, the first seven volumes of the oldest Buddhist texts, which are the, the, the original teachings of the Buddha as recorded anyway, uh, before then it changed into other texts of Mahayana and Vajrayana and so forth, um, are not the teachings, they're, they're the rules for the monks and nuns, uh, 227, 330. And each rule is followed by a story that tells how that particular monk or nun messed up and what they did and then how the community had to come together and say, um, we have to do this in a different way. This is no longer something that we can do and you have to work in your practice in some way to find a way. So this is there from the beginning because we're human. Um, it, it, it's, built, it's built into the system. Now, there's just one other thing which is kind of turning the conversation. And that is that in a healthy system, not only does there need to be a healthy set of ethical guidelines that's held not by the individual but by the collective, and an understanding that we all bring our trauma and our suffering and that there are ways to practice with it. But at the very best, um, a spiritual teacher or a therapist or a guide, um, your film taught people that their suffering and trauma was not their fault. And it lifted so much of the weight on their hearts of those who viewed it. Um, there's an additional step which is to see what Thomas Merton called looking in the eyes, to see the secret beauty of each person and to have them understand that it's not who they are, that who they really are is not their trauma and is not the conditioning and their suffering, that who they are underneath that is a being of consciousness and spirit that was born into this body. Um, and to see that, I mean, I think I'm working, for example, with a woman who has some of the most severe childhood trauma that I've ever encountered. Um, and it's, you know, it's a decade of trauma work of all good kinds just to survive for her. And she's very dear. Um, but part of, beside the techniques and practices that she does and that I can offer or help 
with the trauma, loving kindness, uh, compassion practice, all these forgiveness practices, um, is to see her wholeness, to see her her secret beauty, to use Thomas Merton's phrase, to see her with the eyes that say, this is it, this suffering is, and trauma is not who you are. That there's an inviolable spirit underneath that cannot be taken from you. And this is part of the, the role of someone who is, whether a healer or a spiritual teacher, to be able to see each other in that way changes everything. Yes. You know, um, in the book for which I interviewed you for a couple of years ago, and I've just, today, I think today is the last day of writing. I think I'm done. Um, not a moment too soon. But I, I cite the story, that famous story of the Buddha, apropos what you're talking about, where this murderer, uh, mass killer, is running towards him with evil intent, and the Buddha just doesn't see the killer. He sees the, the divine or the human in that person, and this becomes, and this killer becomes his most gentle and loyal follower. Tara, why do we have such a hard time seeing each other? Because we don't see ourselves, if we don't sense the the goodness, the innocence, the love, the awareness—that's who we really are. If we if we're identified with our egoic mask, you know, our defenses and our ways of behaving, that's what we're going to see in others. And the suffering is that it's. An intelligent coping response. The way when we get traumatized, what we do is intelligent. We do disconnect from the rawness of the pain. And that then leads to acting in ways that do cause harm to ourselves and others. And the hardest part is forgiving that. And Jack has said a number of times that what you do so beautifully, Gabor, is that message of it's not your fault. And I, and I often tell a story of a you know a person walking in the woods and they see a dog by a tree and they go to pet it and the dog kind of lurches at them with its fangs bared and they back off and they go from feeling friendly to being really angry but then they see that the dog's leg is caught in a trap and then they shift and they go oh you know it's, they may not go right near the dog because it's dangerous but their heart shifts and if we could sense how our legs in a trap, how the things we've done that we feel ashamed of and we feel, you know, in, in some way disgusted by or whatever, it's not who we are and it's not our fault. Then if we can hold that space for ourselves, we begin to hold a space for each other where we, it's not that we're not honest about harmful behaviors but we don't have a heart that blames and pushes people away. And th there was one woman I was, was working with who found out from her adult daughter that, and this was a woman that had been drinking all through her, her daughter's growing up. She found out that her then husband had been repeatedly sexually abusing her daughter. And the degree of self-hatred that, that, you know, it was, it was horrific. And she went to a, a Jesuit priest had been a former teacher of hers. And he, you know, he, he did this amazing thing. And I want to share because it still stays with me. He took 
her hand in his big priest hand, and he drew a circle right in the center of her hand, and he said, this is where you're living right now. And it's a place of fear and panic and shame, and she was suicidal, you know, real desperation. And he said, you have to contact this, but you have to remember this. And he put his big priestly hand over hers, and he said, this is the kind of the mercy of the divine, you know. And and if you can remember this, then you'll be able to hold your being with a love that is truly healing. And, you know, just just to say that for months, she couldn't do a meditation where she faced what was in the center of her palm. She could just keep calling on that larger field. But that enabled her after some months to then begin the practices that Jack or I might teach and how to begin to unravel and untangle what was in her body and causing so much pain. Well, thank you. And let's come to those practices. So. I know that you have this meditation or meditation practice uh, with the acronym RAIN, uh, recognize, accept, uh, investigate, and nurture. Is that is that the acronym? So uh, that seems like a very straightforward and easy one to remember. Perhaps you could tell people about how that would help. The reason this is RAIN is is simply a blend of mindfulness and compassion and. The value of having four steps is that when we're triggered, it's like those are the times we can least remember how, what's mindfulness, how do I come back? You know, we're, we've left our bodies and we're in confusion. So having four steps makes a huge difference. For this woman I was just telling you about, just to give you a sense, she was able to move into rain once she had calmed her nervous system enough she had she had enough um she was in the window of tolerance as our friend dan siegel says that she could actually practice mindfulness and i'll make a comment here which is that directly mindfully contacting what's here can re-traumatize unless there's been some other kinds of meditative practices that resource us we have to feel safe enough we have to feel enough belonging enough connection so she had that and then and it was something when she got triggered she could come back to but then she could begin when she was feeling that sense of and what became the biggest for her was just a huge amount of grief and anger at what had happened she could recognize by just naming them and when you recognize you mentally whisper and even out loud what's there, because by noting it, you actually start activating more of your frontal cortex. So you name anger, you name the feelings of, uh, you know, the fear, whatever's there. For her, allow meant that you don't judge it, you don't try to get away from it, you don't try to fix it, you just let what's there be there, because we so quickly have the habit of trying to manipulate it. Investigate it's primarily somatic. And that's really important because our issues are in our tissues, so we have to come into the body. And with investigate, you might ask the question, what are you believing? And for her, the belief was, I've ruined my daughter's life, which is horrific. But then to go into the body and feel, for her, the squeeze and pressure in her heart and chest area, that investigate is to find out where that lives and to sense the the unmet need 
And for her, the unmet need was that sense of trust your love, just trust your goodness, you know. And nurture is where you in some way help your body and heart. It's like your spiritual heart offers that to your human heart. Or if you can't offer it to yourself, you call on some source that can. And for her, because that priest's hands became her own kind of forgiving heart, she was able to put her hand on her heart. And I often in nurturing teach people to just gently put their hand on their heart and just offer that trust your goodness, trust your goodness, trust your love. And then the last piece I'll say, Gabor, is that after the rain, that's what I call once you've done the four steps, is crucial because that's when you sense the presence that's come up and notice the shift from where you started, where you're very identified with that sense of a an angry or grieving self to that sense of more spacious presence that's really tender and awake and, and start to trust that more and more, as Jack was saying, that's your secret beauty. That's your true home. Trust that's who you are. And for her and for most of us, Rain's not a one-shot. It's over and over again until it can become very fluent and, and it can become quick and it can bring us back home again. Thank you. Jack, I'd like to ask you about something. In your book, Path to the Heart, you talk about what you call the perils of meditation. Let me tell you, or spiritual work, I should say. I once did a 10-day Vipassana meditation. It was total silence for 10 days. Just not my style at all. At, at the end of it, I I felt the calmest and most grounded I had felt for a long, long time until two days later when I was flooded with anxiety. So much, this was some years ago, so much that I actually, for a while I actually ended up going on an, you know, a, an SSRI to calm my anxiety. What do you think happened to me? I don't know, Gabor. I didn't know you at the time. You know, I don't know your history as well. Um, okay. So I couldn't really make it. So, so you know, that um, you're asking a really deep question. Um, and there's all kinds of possible causes and conditions. One possible answer is that uh, there was an opening that happened and then the trauma that you carry and that you write about yeah. and the film still carrying um, overwhelmed you, it flooded you. Yeah. Um, and that retreat didn't give you enough of the ground that Tara is talking about or enough of the kind of resources to deal with it. So that's a, that's a possible answer, but there could be other answers as well. Um, I think that's actually quite accurate. I think that's quite accurate. I think for 10 days, I didn't, my, I didn't have my usual go-tos, you know, my cell phone, my computer, my books, my music, my, my, my sports, whatever, you know. And they didn't provide a background. It was very sort of hands-off. It was very strict and regimented, and it, it grounded me, but two days later. Well, that's also, I mean, it, it's an important story in a way because it describes that it's possible to teach these practices without being informed by the kind of resourcing and tenderness and compassion and holding 
that most people need when they confront deep trauma. And so you didn't receive that. It's almost like you got half the medicine, right. but you didn't get the other half. And to add what Tara described so beautifully as rain, um, there are practices, and we've been adding them in over these decades now, 45 years for me of teaching. Uh, there's a lot of self-hatred, for example, that people have, again, based on their trauma. You know, we talked to the Dalai Lama about it years ago. He didn't have, a, there's no word in Tibetan for self-hatred. He couldn't quite, why, why would people do that? I said, well, it's, it's, it, it's common in people coming. It's just one dimension of that suffering. Um, so what we do, beside having an understanding of the layers of trauma that I described in teaching, um, is we have these practices of loving kindness, and you start where it's the easiest. You don't, it's resource. You don't start with the person you're most in conflict. You start, you, most often people can't start with themselves. You start with wherever it, might be your dog or this child, <clears throat> but there's an invitation to start to open the heart. And then little by little, over a hundred times, it grows. There's a practice of forgiveness, and you might have to do it 300 times. Forgiveness doesn't mean you condone what happened. You might say never. You stand up and say, I will not allow the suffering to continue. But it's just not carrying the the hatred and the dissolution in, in in the heart, um, it's more for yourself in some way, little by little, to reclaim your heart. Um, and so these are, these are practices that we give and then support people or compassion practices. The other thing that's, that adds to it, and that in some way might be part of what Tara described as nurturing, is that um, I like to tell people to say thank you to their defenses rather than judge them. Oh, you shouldn't do a spiritual bypass or, you know, you're so judgmental. Um, you know, the mind is so full of anxiety or so busy or something. Um, and, um, you know, these practices are really rep repetitive where you're teaching your nervous system, your heart, a whole new way of being. Um, I think of Julia Child, um, she said, if you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up. Who's going to know, right? And, and that's kind of the meditation instruction. Um, so instead of the judging mind, you start again a hundred times. You're learning something like you learn to walk. A child learning to walk falls down on the average 10,000 times, and then they learn how to walk that you learn how to love again in this way. Um, but the piece I'm getting to is that I say thank you for the anxiety. I feel the feeling. I acknowledge it, you know, recognizing how Thank you for trying to protect me. I'm okay in this moment. Thank you. The judging mind. Stop judging. I hate that judging. Don't. Thank you. And if you don't got recorded, thank you for trying to keep me safe. I'm okay just now. And that expression inwardly of graciousness to say thank you to all these things that have actually tried to keep you safe, even if it split you apart for a time, allows them, okay, you can relax, mind. Thank you for trying to protect me. I'm actually okay just now. Um, and then you can come back to that place that Tara described of 
after the rain of a, of a loving awareness. And that's the word that we use for mindfulness now, is mindful, loving awareness. And that starts to change things um, and open us way beyond the identification uh, that we have with the trauma and the pain that we carry. Thank you. Well, I couldn't think of a more beautiful way to draw this conversation to a close. I just want to ask a broader question that's not totally related, but I'd just be curious on your both of your wisdom on it. Um, Tara, when you were talking about that snarling dog metaphor, we, so, we see so much snarling in our society right now. Like even a threat that has loomed over all of us, this, this, this pandemic, has evoked such venom and rage, not just on one side, by the way, on all sides. Um, I'm wondering from a, I don't know if it's a Buddhist perspective or just from your own perspective, how, how do you see, how do you each see that? And what do you see as any kind of a remedy? I'm not talking about people's opinions as to whether they should or should be vaccinated or this public health measure. I'm talking about the venom uh, and rage that infuses so much of the conversation, which I think is a trauma imprint on a massive social level. I'm curious about your views on that. Yeah, well, first to say, yes, this is a traumatized world right now. I mean, we've had trauma throughout history, but we've never collectively faced our mutual extinction. I mean, this is a traumatized world with pandemic and then add on everything else. So there is a ratcheting up of fear that's huge and unprocessed fear turns to rage. It just does. We it's like the nervous system needs to blame something, to, to toss it out out there. And so one of the, the healing shifts that we get from, from a meditative or contemplative approach is to keep asking the question, I first heard it language like this from Ruby Sales, who's a civil rights icon. She says, where does it hurt? You know, can we see another, or see a group of others and say, where does it hurt? And again, it's the same thing, Gabor, with the leg in the trap. How is your leg in a trap? Because in the moment that we can see that those who are causing suffering, who are filled with rage and venom, are suffering, it's not a happy person that's there when there's venom. It's suffering. Our heart softens them, and we have room for them. We have room to respond in a way that can be part of the healing, not to keep the cycles of hatred going. So asking in some way, where does it hurt? Saying, what's it like being you? Really trying to do that role reverse. It's one of the, um, it's one of the given evolutionary potentials of this consciousness to be able to really sense what it's like for another being and to then care. And so it feels like if ever there's a time in our history that we need to intentionally cultivate compassion, that, that sensing what's it like for you, this is the time. Thank you for that. Um, the way I interpret it, and I think that we mean it, it's not that we go up to the person and saying, what's it like to be you? Because they might interpret that as very aggressive and condescending, but actually in our minds, compassionately asking, what must it be like for them? 
you know? It's in our mind, and when appropriate, it's a beautiful question to sense, you know, yeah. what's going on for you? What's it like right now? Um, we need to reach out to each other on a more intimate level. Yeah. Thank you, Tara. Jack, do you have any comment on the same question? Well, I, I want to echo what the two of you are talking about because those who are listening, we can feel um, the level of cultural anxiety um, and in some cases of despair around climate change, racial and economic justice, pandemic, and the divisiveness that you describe. Um, and it's really clear that no amount of technology and internet and biotech and artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and space technology is going to stop continuing warfare and divisiveness, you know, and climate destruction and injustice because they're rooted in the human heart. James Baldwin, who you quoted earlier, said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their own pain. And Tara so beautifully articulated what it means to see with the eyes of compassion, to see, to imagine or sense what is the pain that person is carrying. And, you know, then the fear that kind of masquerades on top of that in some fashion. Um, we're in a difficult time, um, but we're also called to something. It's not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. it's, suffering is not the end of the story. Um, it's the beginning of the story in the Buddhist teachings. Um, there's there's a paths and practices that evolve us beyond that suffering in ourselves and with one another. Um, and we're being pulled to see our interdependence almost undeniably by the pandemic, by all of these things. And in some way, whether you call it kicking or screaming or whatever, we're 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 being pulled to see things. Um, the scales have fallen off our eyes and hearts, and that is the first step to things actually being transformed. So even in in the midst of the divisiveness, I also find a deep hope um, that this is something that's calling us back to a deeper and fuller connection with one another and to recognize, as your film does in your work, um, the trauma that we carry and then to also see that there are practices and understandings that can free us um, are, are, are really beautiful. And I want to add that um, for anyone interested in following up on Tara Brock's website <clears throat> or jackhornfield.com, these practices, forgiveness, compassion, loving kindness, and so forth, they're all to be found there. And we do a beautiful teacher training for those who are interested in teaching mindfulness and compassion with a lens of deep understanding of trauma and healing individually in the society. Um, we invite people who are interested in that work um, also uh, to avail themselves if they wish. Well, thank you both, and I hope many people follow up on that invitation. Um, thank you. I'm honored to have spoken to both of you. Um, and um, thank you again for the work that you do in the world. Uh, Zara Murcio, uh, Zayan Murcio, if you want to come in now, if you have any 
final questions for these guests of ours? Well, thank you. It just feels like such a wholesome conversation, like any question would pull us away from. It just feels so complete. And yeah. so many pieces I personally took away to continue working, investigating. Jack, I just, it was, I was really touched by the piece that you brought and it's been very present for me about, I have a very active inner critic. And recently I have just starting to thank that inner critic and that piece of work is just opening a, a whole new dimension to our, my own mm-hmm. um, self-compassion, which is of course connected to what I can give to anyone is yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's a big piece for me. So I wanted to thank you for that, for yeah. bringing that up. And, and Tara, I want to share with you a little story. When the last time I did Ayahuasca, a voice came in. I basically hit me so hard that my grandmother gave me song in my head so I can bear the pain. And what you said of oh, the little girl that brought our issue in the tissue that brought her pain you know, that this voice helped her to share the pain in her body. I totally, it totally hit me, you know, because I remember that, that ayahuasca journey in which my grandmother, because I always have a song in my head, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so, both of you have been so, you know, you've been so touching because for us, the, this putting together transcendence and the embodiment is the essence of what we do as humans. Forget the organization. That's our work, personal work. That's what we want to achieve. And you've been so, yeah. And Gabor has been instrumental in our community, Zen community, to bring the conversation of trauma. And when he appeared six years ago, it was like a thunder through the field (laughs) and, and really woke up something in a deep way in our spiritual community. Um, So So, thank you, Gabor, for that as well and for... Yeah. Wow. Uh, thank you. To spread that message of the movie and your work to the world. It's incredible to see how it's finding its way to prisons and and United Nations now is using the movie to train their employees and and, and many, many different <laughs> it's incredible what's happening. Of, of communities that are recognizing truths in, in yeah in this message. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you. All right. Well, look, again, thank you both of you very much. And hope to talk to you. Hope to meet you. And thank you to our guests today, Dr. Gabor Mate, Tara Brock, and Jack Cornfield. And thank you all for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and other offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAN content available exclusively to SAN members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.